0: following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Sometimes one detail can completely raise the stakes of a situation. One facet, one aspect can completely raise the stakes of an entire scenario. Let me give you an example of that. Earlier this week, I was walking through my neighborhood. I was just going for a walk. And some of you know that I live in the same neighborhood as Pastor Dan. Please pray for me, Okay. And uh, as I was walking down the street, I happened to walk past uh, Dan's house and I see Pastor Dan um, outside and he's got a shovel in his hand. I'm like, uh oh. And, and I say, well, Dan, what's going on? He's like, stop, stop, stop. He says, there's a snake right here, okay? And I realized he's going to use this shovel as a weapon. And so I said, okay, I've got to be a good neighbor to Dan, okay? And so I do what any good neighbor would do. I cross safely to the other side of the street and video the whole thing. (laughs) Now, luckily for you, since I videoed and took pictures of this moment, I mean, I just wanted Dan to have an archive of this heroic moment. That's all I was trying to do, okay? And so because that actually caught this picture For you to see, this is a moment of heroism. I mean, look at that man right there. Do you see the intensity on his face? Okay. And so you see, he's got shin guards that he's placed on his legs. Okay. This man's armor. Okay. This is a battle Dan versus Snake. Okay. He's got his, his shovel poised, ready for action. Okay. Now, in Dan's defense, there is one detail that I have not yet mentioned. This is not your average snake. Okay, this is not just like a little ringneck snake. This is a water moccasin. Oh, okay, all right. That changes things. That one detail changes things. Okay, and I watch, and I I have this video that is is uh, unbelievable. Um, But I watched as Dan, he took this shovel, inched slowly towards it, okay, I was cheering him on from like 100 feet away, and he gets the shovel and strikes, and he just annihilated this water moccasin, I think it was at least 24 feet long, okay, annihilated this 24 foot long water moccasin, and just this incredible moment of heroism. Now... The fact, there's one detail of that that changes the stakes. I mean, it takes it from, okay, Dan, just calm down a little bit with your shin guards, okay, to like, okay, I, I see where you're coming from. The fact that it is a venomous snake is a game changer. Sometimes one aspect to the scenario can just raise the, sna- the stakes. I almost said snakes. <laughs> no pun intended. Can raise the stakes considerably, okay? Now we're gonna look at something in the story of Jonah. We've been tracking the story in the in the Old Testament of a city of Nineveh. And really we, we've been talking about Jonah, but it's really more about the story of this city, this great city, Nineveh. And so we've been looking through the book of Jonah the last four weeks and watching how God has called him to Nineveh. And we're gonna the finale of this series, we're gonna wrap up the series today. By looking at another prophet, his name is Nahum. And so I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book or your Bible app to the book of Nahum. If you have a physical Bible, go where you were the last couple weeks in Jonah. And you're going to turn over just two books. They're put right next to each other because they're they're similar. They're tied together because of this city of Nineveh. As you're turning to Nahum chapter 1, I want to get you caught up. And the story of Jonah. Jonah was a guy living in Israel, and God called him to be a prophet to this city, Nineveh. Nineveh was would eventually become the capital of Assyria. It is one of the largest cities in the known world. It is full of people. It is it is um, very influential in the known world, and it is one of the wickedest cities ever discussed in the Bible. It might be the wickedest city in the world at the time. The Assyrians were known for the way their brutality and how they attacked enemy, enemy um, empires. And so God says to Jonah, their evil has come before me. I want you to go speak against it. Jonah decides to run the opposite way to Tarshish. On that boat, God sends a great storm. Uh, eventually, Jonah gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, vomited back up on dry land. God sends him back to Nineveh, he preaches to Nineveh, and an incredible miracle happens. The entire city humbles themselves before God. And that's when it reveals Jonah's heart. Let me remind you what it said. I want you just to hold your place there in Nahum, but let me just remind you just two verses at the end of Jonah. Jonah 4.2, it says, this is Jonah praying, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this why I said when I was yet in my country?' That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are, now watch this, a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He says, I knew these things about you, God, but I wanted justice for Nineveh. Nineveh is so wicked that I didn't want you to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So that's why I went to Tarshish. I ran away from the city. And we learn Jonah's heart. Earlier in chapter 2 of Jonah, he's celebrating how God is showing him all those things. Mercy, grace, steadfast love. He's celebrating that God showed him those things. By the end of Jonah, we see he wants those things for himself from God. He just has no interest in the rest of the world seeing those things from God. It reveals his heart. And then Jonah, the book, uniquely ends with a question. It's God speaking. And this is the question it ends with. Verse 11 of chapter 4. God says, and should I not pity, That's the, that means compassion, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? He says, I, of course I know they're wicked. I, of course I know that they, their moral compass is all turned around. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. He says, but think of it, it's just packed with souls. Shouldn't I have compassion on them, Jonah? And think of how strategic Nineveh is. Think of all their economy, all their cattle, their flocks, their herds, their industry, the innovation. Shouldn't I have compassion for Nineveh, that great city? At the end of the book of Jonah, we see Jonah's heart is revealed. By the way, we know that Jonah himself turned his life around because how else would we have the book of Jonah unless he shared the story? So we see Jonah's actually been challenged as his heart has been exposed. And we, say, we see Nineveh has come, has turned to God. Now we're going to close our series looking at Nahum. And Nahum is another prophet. And he, he's a prophet that speaks out against Nineveh about a hundred years later. Now here's how the book of Nahum starts. I want to read the first several verses. Nahum chapter 1 starting in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the, of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness." Wow. That's a pretty stark contrast to Jonah, wouldn't you say? What we see in the book of Jonah is we see a God who's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from disaster. We turn over to Nahum, and the book opens up saying, God, you are jealous, avenging, full of wrath, and you will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. You are a just God. Those are, I mean... Two completely different sets of attributes of God. Now, now here's our role as pastors, church. Our role of pastors, as it says somewhere in the New Testament, this is later in the New Testament, it says, our role is to present the whole counsel of God. In other words, all that's in the Bible and Christian, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, I mean, that's what you want, right? You don't want just to pick and choose certain parts that are comfortable to hear. But let's say you're here and you are say, look, I'm not a Christian. What I know is that you want the same thing. If you're here saying, look, I'm just still kind of exploring what it means to follow Jesus, what I know that, that you want, you're saying, hey, treat me like a rational thinking person. Don't just sweep under the rug the weird parts like, or the f- parts you think are going to be uh, hard for me to take. I mean, lay it on me. What does the Bible say? Just tell me. Here, and, and so we've got to read Jonah and we have to read Nahum. We have to understand that there's these two parts of God that seem nearly impossible to reconcile he is. It seems like in Jonah, it seems like, man, there is no limit to his compassion. And then over here, we see in Nahum, he says, I'm not going to let the guilty go unpunished. And we, we see over here, we see this, this incredible God of, of love and steadfast, chesed love. And over here, we see a God that says, I'm full of wrath. In fact, did you, let's just talk about Nahum for a second. Let's just put aside the contrast and just dig into Nahum. Did you hear how God described what his wrath is like? He said, Bashan and Carmel wither. Those are mountains. You imagine a mountain just shrinking and withering, not crumbling, shrinking in fear. It says hills, whole hills melting. It says the earth is heaving before the wrath of God, the indignation. He says, who can stand before the wrath of God? The one that finds black holes, no big deal. The one who breathes stars like the inferno of our sun, which is kind of a small star. He breathes them out of his mouth. He says, when I marshal that same power in my wrath, who could stand before it? See, the Bible shows us both sides of God. God reveals to us through Scripture, look, there's this side uh, of his compassion, but there's also the side of his wrath. They are both part of what make up God. And we say, okay, look, I I, I like the Jonah stuff. I'm not sure how I feel about the nay himself. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? In fact, maybe you say, "Look, I, this is why the Old Testament kind of wigs me out. I just can I just stay kind of in the New Testament." Can I just I like the the Jesus kind of accepting everybody and, and I like that, but see here's the thing: you cannot understand and appreciate the brilliance of the New Testament until you understand the truth of the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't make sense without the table being set by the Old Testament. Think of it like this: the Old Testament is God setting up The chessboard perfectly making every single move. The whole Old Testament is all the moves of God. It's one setup so that when the New Testament comes, there's one move and it checkmates all of evil, sin, and death. But until you understand the moves of the Old Testament, you cannot appreciate the New Testament. In fact, without his wrath that we see in Nahum, God doesn't make sense. Actually, the universe doesn't really make sense. In fact, the more you push into this, you'll realize you want the God of Nahum as much as you want the God of Jonah. Did you notice in the midst of this whole description of God's wrath, it says this in verse 7, the Lord is good. Did Did you catch that? If he's good... Then he abhors evil. C.s. Lewis talked about um, our understanding of of goodness and, and he suggested that our problem in understanding God is that we struggle with his con- the concept of his goodness. We don't struggle as much. I don't think anyone, whether you're a Christian or you're here or you're watching online, and maybe you say, like I'm not sure I'm a Christian or I'm still um, exploring. I don't think whatever category you're in, I I think we struggle less with his omnipotence and and his omniscience than we do his omnibenevolence. I think we struggle less with the fact that he's all-powerful and all-knowing than the fact that he's all-good. I think because by definition, if there's a God, he'd have to be all-knowing and have to be all-powerful. And if he's just like really smart, but he's not all-knowing and all-powerful, then he's not God. He's just some alien being that's really sharp. By definition, God is all-powerful and all-knowing. I think we get that. I think are the question that holds us up is, is that all-knowing, all-powerful God all good or not? And I think if you're someone who says, like, I don't know where I stand with God, what you're, you may struggle with is, if he's all good, why is there un- what seems like unchecked evil in this world? The question's about his goodness. But I think more often what happens is the struggle is it's more personal. We say, God, if you're all good, why did you let this happen in my life? In fact, if you're a Christian and you've had a difficult time in your life uh, and someone comes up to you and you're going through this trial and you're struggling and you say, look, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And someone says to you, hey, man, God's in control there's a reason why that is very little help to you, right? Because you know he's in control. Like, I know. (laughs) Why is he letting this happen to me? I get it. Like, I I know he's in control. I just don't know how he can be good and let this happen. It's not his control that I'm struggling with. It's his goodness. And so C.S. Lewis says we push against his goodness because here's how we define goodness – We want God to be, and he puts it like this, a senile benevolent who spoils us. We don't want God to be a good father. We want him to be a borderline senile grandfather. What we want is God to look at us and say, oh, they do no wrong. Man, I love them. I just can't help it. You want some more candy? Sure. We want a god that spoils us. We want a god that, that doesn't see, sees us as doing no wrong, gives us whatever we ask, even if it's bad for us, even if it will rot our teeth. We want a god that says, "I can't help myself." We want a god who is who just can't help himself but spoil us. Is that good? No. What is good is a god that is against evil. Here's what we find in the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum is exposing our hearts every bit as much as Jonah exposes our hearts. Let's, I wanna, here's what I want to do. I want you to hold on to that thought. But what I want to do is I want to give you, I wish we could go through all of the book of Nahum it would be worthwhile for you to read read through the whole thing sometime this week. It's only 3 chapters. Um I'm not going to do that today not because it's too long, but because some of the content describing God's wrath is a little too PG-13. It's a it's a unbelievably explicit description of God's wrath and it's part of revealing who God is. Let me just give you a sampling from later in Nahum. This is chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard." Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. He's talking to Nineveh. He gets to the very end. Let me read you the last verse of Nahum, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Here's the last line. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? He says, Nineveh, I am going to take you down. And people, when, they, then when the earth sees you fall, they'll just clap their hands over you. And then he ends with this question. Who has not been affected by your unceasing evil. Everyone around you has felt your cruelty. And when a regime like that falls, no one's sad. Okay, what has happened in Nineveh over the course of a hundred years from Jonah to Nahum? Because we see that Nineveh comes Before God and humbles themselves. Here's what's interesting about the historical record, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. The the historical record of Assyria goes very quiet for about 30 to 40 years. And then all of a sudden a king rises up, puts the capital in Nineveh, and then starts his campaign, starts up the campaigns with fresh vigor again. And they're every bit as expansive as they, as they were before, and every bit as brutal and violent, even attacking um, Israel, destroying Israel, and then attacking Judah, the nation of Judah. And then God comes in and says, you're going to go down. And a few years after this, um, Bab- the Babylonians and the Medes come in and conquer Assyria, and it's wiped out. Historians have said a couple hundred years later, there was... Um, a historian, was going by the ruins of Nineveh, and it was so kind of forgotten as a city that he didn't even mention that he was going by it. What happened? They come before God, but something happened that they did not pass it down to the next generations. Their kids didn't get it, and their grandkids didn't get it. Side note, Man, isn't that one of the most important things that we could possibly leave behind in our life? A legacy of faith to our children and grandchildren. That is so important. That's one of the priorities of our church, and that's exactly the series we're going to start next, in our series Mighty, starting next week, talking about how do we leave a legacy? How Shouldn't the most intentional thing we do with our lives, what could be more intentional than that? Is there any bigger priority than our children and grandchildren? What could be more important than leaving a legacy and making sure it passes down to our children and grandchildren? We're gonna tr- we're gonna talk about how to do that in starting in our next series. Apparently, that did not happen in um, in Nineveh because a couple generations later, they return with fresh vigor to the violence and brutality. And this time, in the same way Jonah ends with the question, "Shouldn't I have compassion on Nineveh?" This time, God says, "Okay." Who has not felt your cruelty? And this time you are going to feel my wrath. See, here's what these two books, they both end with a question. And it kind of, they're the only two books in the Bible that end with a question. And it kind of links them together. Also, they're both talking about Nineveh. And they both kind of reveal our hearts, don't they? Because Jonah reveals our hearts. We want God's steadfast love and mercy and compassion and grace and we want, all, we want him to turn away from his, from his anger towards us, but we're just not necessarily interested in that with the rest of the nations. But Nahum kind of reveals in a similar way, we want God to be good, we want God to hold the guilty, um, we want him to hold the guilty accountable, we want him to make sure justice is upheld in, in the rest of the world, we're just not very interested in him showing that side of his goodness towards us. And so, this, they both end with this question. And here's the challenge of Jonah and Nahum. There are these two things that seem unreconcilable, but they're two sides to the personality of God. They're two sets of the attributes of God. And it seems when you have Jonah and Nahum, how do these intersect in one being? How can you have a God who is merciful and avenging? How can you have a God that is gracious and wrathful? How can you have a God that is slow to anger and a God who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished? Like how do those two things, how do we reconcile these two things in, in, out of the book of Naaman. How do we reconcile these two things? See, here's what we learn from the book of Nahum. We learn that yes, God is compassionate, but at the same time, God is also wrathful. Two things that seem like they they cannot coexist in one being. And here's what this does, church, as we have a heart to go reach the city do you realize understanding the the fact that there is such a thing as the wrath of God that shows us what the stakes are these are the stakes this is showing us God is not just Santa Claus he upholds justice and that you and I have been sprinkled through this community we've been sprinkled through this city like granules of salt to carry the message, to, carry, to because there is such a thing as the wrath of God. That's what the stakes are. Church, let me put it in more stark terms. Do you realize that based on most, most recent studies, 3% of the people living in South Florida are genuinely Christ followers? 3%. That means... 57,000 in Broward. Think of all the churches that you know within all of those in Broward. 57,000 in Broward. That means 81,000 in Dade County. Do you see the stakes? And we say, okay, How do we, what are we supposed to do with this then? Because we, we see the compassion of God and the wrath of God. How do these two things intersect? How do they coexist in one singular being? Let me read you one more verse from the book of Nahum. It's this, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what it says. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He says, Judah, there's good news for you. It's good news. The the wrath of God is actually good news because it shows off His goodness. The guilty will go punished. That should be good news for you, Judah. But before... We celebrate that our enemies will experience the wrath of God. We have to stop and get the whole story. What does it mean to warrant the wrath of God? Well, the Old Testament uses the, the Ten Commandments. So, um, number one, have no other gods before me. I mean, has there ever been a time that I've ever put anything over God? Um, Person, career, success, um, anything. I mean, has there anything like I, I've ever put, is there anything, I, I mean, whatever someone puts over God, uh, you know, wealth, um, goals, children, a relationship, I mean, well, number two, um, have no other idols, um, so is, I mean, that thing I put over God would, would be an idol. I mean, what about coveting? Has there ever been a a time where I've coveted something else from from someone? I I mean, when we look at what it looks like to warrant God's wrath, I mean, here's what the New Testament says. It says, there is none that is righteous, no, not one. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It, It says, the wages of sin is death. Here's how the chessboard in the Old Testament is set up. Judah. Celebrate this truth. God is good. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Time out. Who are the guilty? Every last one of us. Can you reread Nahum this week? The description of the wrath of God as a reminder not of what Nineveh deserved but of what you and I deserve. What's interesting is it says that there's good news here because the other half of that verse in Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. It says the worthless will be cut off. But what actually happened is is God said, I am setting the chessboard. How am I fully compassionate and merciful and fully wrathful and just? There's one move that evil and death itself could have never anticipated where those things come together. God comes down to earth himself, was perfectly innocent in the form of Jesus, and took all of that wrath On himself as a substitute, upholding his justice. But absorbing all of that on himself so that he could be merciful to us. There's only one way God can express his wrath and his mercy. It's in the gospel, the good news. He absorbed all of the wrath on himself. So when you read through the book of Nahum, it's not just what we deserve. That's a description of what Jesus took on himself. I was talking to, to Pastor Angel about this this week, and he said, imagine all of that wrath, wrath that make mountains shrink and, and wither, that make hills melt, and all of that concentrated like a missile landing on Jesus instead of us. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we could experience the grace and mercy and compassion. Church, these are the stakes. This is the good news. Do you realize you you and I have good news to take out? It's that Jesus took the wrath of God for us. It's that God loves and accepts because he's full of mercy. But here's what the Bible says. How... How are they to hear without a preacher? The same book of Romans. How are they to hear without a preacher? He says, God is saying, I am sending you to the city. This is the message that we have to take out. What I want to challenge you to do is can you just take that card out for a second that's on your chair. Can can everyone pull this out in a pen? I want you to take take out that card off of your, your chair, that with a pen. And here's what I want you to do this week. There's a card on your chair, and it says, that great city. It's got a picture of our cities, Miami and Fort Lauderdale. And then on the bottom, it says the words from Jonah, arise and go. Can you just take out that card? And what I want you to do this week is I want you to put this in a place that is memorable for you, to remember to pray for, for our cities. I want you to put it on your dashboard. Put it in your Bible where when you read in the morning, you have it as, as a place that you, that, that you um, pull it out and pray. Put it on your refrigerator. But here's what I want you to do this morning. Can you turn that card over? And I want you to take out a pen, and what I want you to do is draw a line down the middle of that card. Go ahead. Take a second. Draw a line down the middle of that card. And I'm going to issue you a challenge this week. On the right hand of that card, I want you to write these Five words on the right hand, just list them down the side on the right-hand side. Pray, meet, listen, love, invite. Pray, meet, listen, love, invite. I want you to write that down the right hand of your card. On the left hand of your card, I want you to number down the side 1 through 10. Just number it, go ahead, number it 1 through 10. Some of you are already stressed out because you want them evenly spaced and you're running out of space, okay, just do the best you can, okay? One through ten on the left-hand side. And here's what I want you to do. We are called to reach the city. I want you to start in the most narrowest sphere that God has placed you in, your physical neighbors in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, around the condos that you live, wherever it is. I want you to write the ten closest neighbors to you. I want you to write... Their names. Go ahead and start listing them down. If there's a house that you don't know their names, leave it blank. Okay? I want you to begin writing them. Go ahead. Start doing it. Write down the neighbors that live closest to you as best you can, your neighbors. Leave it blank if you don't know their name. Here's the challenge I'm extending to you between now and the end of the year. Have all 10 slots filled in. If we're going to love the city, we should know who our neighbors are. So here's what I want you to do. We say, what do I do with this list? Five things. I want you to begin. We're going to pray for the city. We're going to love the city, but let's start with just our neighbors. I want you to pray for them by name. I want you to meet them. If there's some that you don't know, just stop and just say, hey, by the way, I, you know what? It's embarrassing. I've lived here for 17 years, and um, we've never met before. Or you know what? I've asked you your name seven times, and um, I'm sorry. Can you remind me one more time? Or just blame it on your your spouse. My wife forgot your name. You know, that's the problem. You know, whatever you need to do, just list their names. Get them down. I want you to start praying for them. Meet them. Here's the next thing. Get to know them. Just listen to their story. Ask them what they do. Just listen. The most loving thing you can do is just listen. Find out who they are. Find out about their family. Find out where they work. Just listen. Find ways to love on them. This is, a, this is an order uh, of steps. Start listening to them. Find ways to love on them. And then the last one is pray and wait for an opportunity to invite them into the body of Christ. We try and give you as many excuses and equip us with as many excuses as you can to invite. You see, oh, you have kids. Oh, you should come check out our, our church. We just opened a brand new kids space. You We'd know, love to have you anytime. No pressure. Hey, oh, you know what? We've, I see you've got grandkids. We're talking a series, doing a series at my church right now about um, how to, to invest in your kids and grandkids. Um, oh, hey, it's Christmas time. If you don't have anywhere to worship at Christmas time, we'd love for you to come out. We have a thing for the whole family. We try and give you ways to invite. Here's the, write this list down. This is not just something to do this week. I want you to put this in a place you can remember, and your job is between now and the end of the year is fill out all 10 of these names. Pray, meet, listen, love, and invite. Why? Think of the stakes. The stakes are high because there is such a thing as the compassion of God and the wrath of God. The stakes are high. I, a pastor friend of me, told, friend of mine, told uh, me a story of a, a German pastor he knew, and he said the guy had just gotten out of seminary and it was his first assignment to a very conservative Lutheran church. And he shows up at this Lutheran church it was conservative, more formal, and this particular church, and his first Sunday was Confirmation Sunday. And so, you know, he's in his robe, and all the, uh, the whole church is there, and there's this group of middle schoolers. They've all been through confirmation classes, and he's going to, in front of the church, and, and all the elders are sitting there, and they're kind of stern-looking, and they're going to ask these kids... Um, these theological questions that they've learned. And the first question was something like you know, it was a common Lutheran confirmation question: How can a holy and just God declare sinners right declare sinners righteous? And these middle schoolers have been trained this and they're answering. The first one, you know, answers, then he asks them more questions, asking about the nature of scripture and the nature of, of Jesus, and they're all they're answering right, and, and the and the elders are sitting there and like, hmm, you know, that's good, and they're going through it, and then he gets this one little girl, this one middle school girl, and she has Down syndrome. And she steps up in, in front and he says to her, um, how could a just and holy God declare sinners righteous? And she goes, I don't know. And so he asked her another question. Okay, um, what, about the nature of, of the scripture, I, I don't know. About the divinity of Christ, about the nature of faith, and I, I don't know. And he's kind of like, Man, what do I do? It's my first Sunday here. The, you know, the church is squirming a little bit. And then he says, okay, sweetheart, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should you come into to heaven? And everyone's standing there you know, just watching what your response would be. You're standing before God. What would you say? And she says, I wouldn't say anything. I would just find Jesus and run and hide behind him. You know, that's the exact right answer. How does the wrath of God and compassion of God exist in one being? He triangulated all of the wrath On his son Jesus exhausted it on him and we just hide behind him so we experience just the mercy and compassion of God church we're called to take that good news to this world and to our city and we can just start with our neighbors to celebrate the truth of what Jesus has done for us, we're going to close with a time of communion here together. And so um, how this works is there's um, bread and there's juice here at, there's two stations here and there's two in the back. And taking communion, what that means is you're going to either come up here to the front, you can go in the back and you're going to take a piece of the bread and the juice and you're going to take it and then you're going to go back to your seat And and here's what we're doing as we're taking the bread. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus. The juice represents the shed blood of Jesus. And by taking this communion, it's our way of celebrating that Jesus, His sacrifice, absorbed the wrath of God so that there's nothing left for us but His compassion and mercy. Now, here's the thing. If you're not sure where... Um, you stand with God this morning. If you're not sure about that, then what I want to encourage you to do is just hold off from taking communion um, today. But if you are saying, look, I want to take that step for the first time. I, I want to hide behind Jesus. I, I want to know that Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for me. Then when you're if you're taking communion for the first time, putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, just take one of the wooden cups. The plastic cups are for us, but the wooden cups are for you taking communion for the first time. If you're joining us live online, you can get um, a piece of bread or a cracker and some juice. And we would love for you to take communion with us this morning. You're part of our body. And so if you're a follower of Christ, join with us as you're watching us online. And so here's what I want us to do, just to remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And so when you're ready, you can begin coming forward and going to the back. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.